that being said, let me uh, have you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Uh, we have not actually done a, uh, a prophecy update on Sunday mornings in a little while, and so we're going to do one this morning. Um, we do them regularly on our daily podcast. If you watch those, you're aware that we probably every half a dozen episodes or so touch on something prophecy-related. Um, but that said, it occurred to me that I may have gotten so used to doing it there that we haven't done one here now in a while, and so I want to make sure we... Um, both for the sake of information, hopefully from God's Word as we look at these things, some inspiration. Um, and also, we want to just remember that it's important for us to spend time looking at last things. Uh, I've been prone to bringing this up quite a bit, but when you consider uh, what Paul considered part of discipleship with a new church, young believers, uh, in First and Second Thessalonians, a fellowship he only really spent a few weeks with, uh, among the things he taught them about were last days related things, things like the rapture, things like um, the, the, the day of the Lord, things like the Antichrist coming. And, and some of the most um, specific things that we know about those days uh, from the epistles come from those writings that Paul spent uh, his time talking to these new believers about. And so there's never really a wrong time in a, a Christian's faith to spend time on these subjects. And so we want to spend a little time here this morning You'll also know, uh, if you don't know, I'll make, make it a point, that if you're looking for someone to get you all riled up and jumping up and down and screaming, that's not me. You know, there are pastors that make a living on getting people riled up on this subject, and that's not what we do. We take a good hard look at what the scriptures have to say. We consider the implications in terms of our walk. It's always under the blanket of the concept of discipleship, that we would grow closer and closer in our relationship with the Lord. And that means taking a good look at these things. And so that's why we do it frequently. Uh, and that's why we do our best to, uh, just as believers, to take time to understand these things. Um, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, John writes these words. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, I've butchered this quote many times, but C.S. Lewis said that if you feel, I'm not I wrote it down this time just to get it right. But if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Our hearts ache for home. As believers, we increasingly feel like a fish out of water in the world in which we live. Um, not just the the frightening circumstances of wars and rumors of wars, things like that. But just the general mindset of so many in the world is growing increasingly darkened, uh, increasingly antagonistic to not just good, but even any reasonable definition of good. It's getting to the point where it's hard to even talk to people anymore. And that, that irks, not irks, that's the wrong word. I mean, maybe it does irk us, but really it, it troubles us. It concerns us. It causes us to really wonder how long. You know, in, uh, in Israel's time in the Old Testament, there are points in the Psalms where you see, uh, how long, O Lord, you know, this cry for God to intervene and to act. Well, in, in the New Testament, we have the same cry to God. You know, how long until you finally end the wickedness and the evil? How long until you finally make your presence known in such a way that things just change? How long until you answer the prayer 
your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, in Revelation 11, 13, uh, again, as this wonderful cry from heaven, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There will come a day when Jesus will set up his kingdom. That day is coming. The kingdoms of this world, or the kingdom literally, singular, uh, the idea there is that it's not that there are, even though there are in one practical sense many different kingdoms, the word there is singular because ultimately the kingdoms of this world form one simple kingdom that is ultimately under the rule, the authority of the evil one. As a matter of fact, I'll encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 4. We will probably move around to a few different verses today too, so... That's rain, isn't it? I love that. Don't you just love that? Oh, that's just so peaceful. Don't fall asleep on me, though. (laughs) If you left your windows down, by the way. All right. So in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 8, of course, this is the passage where Jesus has been in the wilderness fasting and praying. He's not eaten anything. And Satan comes at his weakest point, at Jesus' physically weakest point, and begins to tempt him. And in verse, uh, uh, in verse 5 in particular, I'll just look at the one particular temptation where Satan says, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And of course, Jesus responds and denies the temptation. And much could be said about each of these temptations, but I just want to point out one specific thing. And that's that in Jesus' response, he doesn't argue with Satan about who's in charge of this world. Satan is really the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the inspiration for the sons of disobedience. And Jesus came to take it back. But Satan does have influence in this world, and as such, whatever facet it happens to rear its head in, he ultimately is the authority behind so many of the thrones of this world. Now, of course, we understand God is sovereign over all things. It's not like God can't flip a switch, and there's reasons why he does what he does, some of which we understand, others we wonder and and, and want to figure out. But Satan, in a very real sense, is the God of this world, and he has supreme influence, it would seem, over so many in it. And he's been at work exercising this authority in all the different ways that we see when evil rears its head. Um, And that shouldn't surprise us because in John 10.10, we know that Jesus said that the devil has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so as the characteristics of this world continue to move in that direction of destruction and, and wickedness and that, we understand that's really the devil's imprimatur on the world around us. Um, In our prophecy briefs, we talk about current events, and I will mention a few things. Of course, um, it's it's getting to where now this is a household word, but it was only a year ago that it was almost kind of not a very well-known thing. But how many of you have heard of the Great Reset? Right, almost pretty much everybody now. Well, you know, a year ago, that was something that no one really paid attention to. But the Great Reset is a movement uh, spearheaded by the World Economic Forum, led by a man named Klaus Schwab, who has written, I wouldn't say prolifically, but he's written a couple of books on the subject, 
called The Industrial Fourth Revolution and also COVID-19 and The Great Reset. These are two books that have come out in the last few years uh, that speak to this whole movement to move the world in uh, an entirely new direction based around five basic foundations dealing with government, economics, environment, um, social, and also uh, uh, technology, technological. And so in these areas, we see lots of very definitive, uh, intentional moves in a very particular direction. Um, and we've talked about this in the past, so I'll just simply commend you to look up some of our past Sunday mornings and some of the other podcasts where we're talking about this. But I do want to point out the fact that Satan, through all of these things, and I don't hesitate to say who's behind all of this, because one of the most important things to recognize about a move in the Great Reset, where we talk about global unity, which is the ultimate goal, an entire world that is under this philosophy and this idea uh, uh, that, they're, that they're driving us toward, but it is Satan that's behind it, and we know this because the kingdom that the world is trying to build behind this movement is markedly different than the kingdom that the scriptures tell us Jesus is going to install. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7, we see Daniel is given, um, uh, in the one hand, he's interpreting a dream for Nebuchadnezzar, but in, in chapter 7, God is giving him a vision of these things. And in both cases, the idea is that after a succession of kingdoms that are established by man, ultimately the Lord comes and establishes an eternal kingdom that will have no end and puts down all of the previous ones. Uh, and so we know that this kingdom of man is at odds with the kingdom of God, and naturally so. Because our human nature, left unchanged by the Holy Spirit, is always going to be moving in a different direction than where God is going. As a matter of fact, Paul would say, don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh, but be in step with the Spirit, is literally what the Greek is saying. Walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with Him, which in itself inherently implies a different direction. Well, the world without the Spirit is not going to move in the direction that the Spirit is leading. And so we understand that the things that the world seeks to build, uh, no matter how well-intentioned on their part, and I'll even give the benefit of the doubt to so many of the adherents of this Great Reset movement, that they think they're doing the right thing. Not just for personal gain, but they think it's the best way to save humanity, if you will. But their definition of save is very different than the definition that the Lord has put forth. And so... When we think of things, um, well, let's take the most obvious thing, COVID, right? This disease has killed people. It's a legitimate disease. We understand this. I mean, it really does affect, especially those with pre-existing conditions. But the response to COVID has found magnitudes of more damage than the disease itself. Um, and as such it has become a means of control by those who want to move the world in a particular direction. And I don't say that to sound conspiracy-minded and that kind of a thing. You don't even have to almost study it to see that anymore. It's become so completely clear. It's caused people to be in fear, to be terrified of being around other people. And I'm, I'm accepting, of course, those who are susceptible to being affected by the impacts of it more than the average person. And I say that as somebody who had COVID. My family and I, we've all had it already. Some, some of you have had it. Some have died from it, no doubt. We don't minimize that truth. But it is far less devastating than most any pandemic in our history. But the response to it 
has caused many to feel like if they are too close to anybody without a mask on, they are doomed. And set aside the overreaction of that. Think about what that does to a person's psyche. Think about what that does to people who are afraid to gather with others. And I'm not making fun of people who are afraid. I'm just saying that that fear is a valuable tool in the hands of the enemy. Perfect love casts out fear. Now that passage speaks specifically of judgment when John uses it in his first epistle. But there's a principle that underlies that, that finds greater and more far-reaching impact than just in the immediate sense that John uses it. There's a healthy and wise precautions that we take when we potentially are in physical danger. But it is possible, and we ought to be able to talk about it, it is possible to overreact to the point where people isolate themselves, they separate themselves to such an extent. There are churches today, for example, that have not met since COVID started. Now, we're something like, what, a year into the thing? Yeah. So that's 52 weeks into two weeks to flatten the curve. Okay? Now, think about it. There's a reason why solitary confinement is a form of torture. The impacts of it affect people in ways that are hard to recover from. I will say this, though. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, who was incarcerated in solitary confinement for some time, later on went back to his, he went back to visit the cell that he'd spent so much time in because it was there that he met Christ. So it's not like God can't use something terrible that man intends for evil and use it for good. But in general, that kind of separation is something that's just not, we're not designed for it. We're not meant for that kind of thing. Even if you are the most, you know, introverts will joke that this period of time has allowed their superpowers to shine, you know. <laughs> but even if you are a massive introvert, everybody needs to be in contact with people somehow, to some degree. You can't be forced out of that for such a long period of time and not be affected by it. Well, in terms of response to COVID right now, um, and I, I should have written her name down, but she, uh, she's an uppity up in the WTO, and she made the comment that has been now starting to make the rounds, that unless everybody is safe from COVID, nobody is safe from COVID, which means that unless everybody is vaccinated, everybody does the things that are required, nobody is safe and there will always be risk. And on top of that, the disease is also morphing, which means the vaccinations currently may not be able to affect, uh, fight off the new versions and all that kind of thing. Well, now when I said that to you, some of you, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you got scared at that. The thought that, oh my gosh, I'm going to be wearing a mask for the rest of my life. Oh my gosh, I'm never going to go back to normal. Well, the truth of the matter is that they don't want you to go back to normal. They've made that statement openly. They don't want to go back to the way things were. They want to build back better. And they want to move into an entirely new kind of a world. Um, this is the world we're living in right now. This is what we deal with on a daily basis. This is what we are forced to have to wake up to every morning. And that in and of itself, as a believer, should cause us to say, how long, oh Lord, you know, let these kingdoms become yours. You know, let this world come under your control once again, Lord. 
other things and uh, other elements uh, in our day. Uh, of course, you know, it's not just Daniel's 70th week we're looking, uh, we, we know is coming, but also there's still Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's still going to be a war in the Middle East around Israel, led by Russia and other nations will come around her. That hasn't gone away. That will continue to make steps forward. And I think even more so now uh, with our new administration has a very different view toward Israel. Um, he has made contact with Netanyahu, but it's clearly a very different relationship than what they've been used to. Uh, and that, of course, like any, uh, any geopolitical chess game, has moves and counter moves. Russia is becoming uh, much more, uh, their desire has grown even more intensely to become the premier player in the Middle East, whereas we, generally speaking, were in many respects. Uh, but Russia for a long time has sought that place to sort of become the, you know, the most influential superpower in that part of the world. And so Putin and Netanyahu have had a somewhat tentative relationship, but Putin has been making interludes to want to keep that relationship and to build on it in that. Netanyahu, for his part, like him or not, has gone to lengths to make it clear that he doesn't trust anybody. As a matter of fact, see, we often hear about these attacks in Syria that take place on uh, you know, the facilities that are run by Iranian proxies, names like Hezbollah, for example. Um, Putin has made it known he wanted Netanyahu to let him know ahead of time when he was going to strike because he wanted to step in and sort of um, negotiate or make moves there to kind of calm things down, but Bibi won't do it. He doesn't trust him, really. The fact that he doesn't tell him is an indicator that he doesn't trust him. Nor should he. Now, I don't know how much... I'm fairly certain that Benjamin Netanyahu is well aware of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Whether or not he has the perspective we have on it is different, but I'm sure he's aware of it. The primary feature, by the way, of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not the war, but it's the fact that God intervenes in it so that they will all know that he is the Lord. That phrase occurs something like seven or eight times in the course of those two chapters, both to his own people, Israel, and also to the enemies who are coming against her. But that day will come. That day will come when that attack on Israel, uh, there's lots of speculation about what the cause will be, but whatever it is, uh, Gog and Magog, or Russia and her leader, will ultimately lead a, con uh, a confederation of nations against her locally in the Middle East. It's not Armageddon, because Armageddon is all the nations of the world coming against Israel. This is a local conflict. However, the implications of it may have something to do with ushering in the time of Antichrist. I tend to think they will have a direct connection uh, for various reasons that, again, we've spoken about. But that being said, Russia is ramping up its game. So, by the way, is Iran. Uh, you know, what, like Trump or not, and I know there are mixed feelings in this room, Trump spoke the language of dictators. The reason that we didn't go to war for four years with anybody is because Trump was an X factor. He was not afraid to flex his muscle and the, the, the muscle of the U.S. military. Well, that's a language that Putin speaks. It's also a language that the Ayatollahs, uh, President Rouhani, uh, all of those in, in Iran, uh, those leaders there, they understand that. Um, it's one thing to give idle threats. It's another thing to wonder if the guy is serious. I'm not saying, I'm not condoning or whatever. I'm just saying, in geopolitical chess, you'd be careful before you call somebody's bluff. 
And so we've had relative peace for a period of time, which means that for a time we've sort of, you know, had somewhat of a stay of some of these things that we're looking to see prophetically take place. Well, it shouldn't surprise anybody that under this new administration, that's going to change and is changing already. As a matter of fact, Tehran, who has been essentially given the back of the hand by our previous president, is now making demands of the United States before it re-enters into the Iranian nuclear deal. Think about that. Iran, who now is once again re-engaging in developing, it's, it never stopped developing, but now it's very open about it, and is saying that the U.S. needs to meet certain demands, removing sanctions and things like this, in order to even get to the negotiating table with Iran again. Well, you know, when the shoe's on the other foot, it gets kind of ugly, because Iran's desire is conquest. And in particular, they want to not just take territory from Israel, they want to exterminate Israel. And they've never hidden that fact. So there are implications about what's going on in the world around us. And it's important that we watch the news and pay attention for the things that are going on. Because in this particular instance, because Israel is the center of end times prophecy, uh, in the days ahead, expect Israel and this is why we pay attention to what's going on there, because as has often been said, if you want to know where you are on the prophetic timetable, look at Israel. Well, over the next four years, expect Israel to take back into its own hands, never, not that it ever didn't kind of take it in its own hands, but with a friend in the United States, we had influence to kind of cause them to maybe hold up a little bit, to not do what they might do otherwise. And even still, they, they took a lot of matters into their own hands to pre preserve their own existence not protect their people simply, but to preserve their existence. Think about that. Imagine living under that and then being told by other countries how you should act. We would never stand for that. Well, Israel now is going to be, uh, is going to very likely, uh, I'm sure already is taking grand steps toward doing whatever it has to do to ensure its survival without the expectation of America coming to her aid. Let me put it another way. In Ezekiel chapter 38, when the nations uh, come against Israel that are listed there, Russia, Iran, Turkey, some of the other countries, Ethiopia, Libya, other nations that will come. If, you, if the United States is mentioned in prophecy at all, and it's not entirely clear that we are, but if we are, there's this one little verse that talks about Sheba and Dedan, which for you prophecy nuts is who? Saudi Arabia, very good. And uh, the merchants of Tarshish and her young lions. Tarshish is generally held to be speaking of uh, England. And if, in fact, it is referring to England, then the young lions would be her offspring, like the United States, Australia, things like this. Well, the young lions, along with Saudi Arabia, are kind of maybe rebuking is even too strong of a word, but they're kind of speaking against these nations coming against Israel, but they're not participating in stopping it. They're not joining in to, to, to fight Israel, but they're not really doing anything meaningful to stop it from happening. In our, under our current administration, I have no problem understanding how that could be. It used to be before where it's, oh, well, something happens to us and maybe we're you know, we get hurt militarily or something like that. We assume there's some big catastrophic thing that happens. You know, EMP blows out the power grids and, you know, we can't get anything going. It might just simply be that we stop caring. 
it might just be that simple. You know, the president can send troops, the Congress can declare war, and as, as one particular party seems to be managing the, those two branches of government now, it is not hard to imagine why we would not intervene in that conflict anymore. I think it took something like 50 days, or not 50 days, how long was it? It was, it was some ridiculous stretch of time before Biden even spoke to Netanyahu. You know, they make the call to the world leaders and stuff. It was like a couple of weeks or something at least, maybe three weeks before they actually had a conversation together after the election. Um, and so I would expect things to change in a way that affects prophecy, and which is another reason why we watch and we pay attention. Now, as far as the United States, we mentioned, oh, one other thing too, I guess I should mention, and I don't mean to sound flippant against this, but it's hard not to... Um, wonder if maybe this is something too. How about the Pope? <laughs> Man, he's really eyeing that open spot for false prophet. It just seems like, are you kidding me? Like, like I understand like it, the, the Catholic theology is different than biblical theology on many, many crucial fronts. But there was always this sort of sense that, you know, you know, there were some things that we could sort of expect they would do like Protestants would, you know, and, but increasingly popes have been very ecumenical and I think uh, Pope Francis is planning on going to, I think, or to go pray where Abraham is from because he's the father of all the three world major religions and we all worship the same God and we should all come together and pray to our God who is the God of Abraham and what a smite in the eye of God. What do you mean they're the same? <laughs> No, they're not. You can't equate Allah uh, with with Jehovah. Now, the Jews, obviously, you know, if, if you know, rabbis go and pray, and in one sense, yeah, but they're still rejecting Christ at this moment. They've rejected the Messiah the first time he came. But how you would ever equate the God of Christianity with the God of Islam is the height of ignorance and offense. And don't worry about it being offensive to me. <laughs> I'm not the one who matters. Um, you can't just say that stuff to a billion followers, right? So as that, and, and, and by the way, on that note, uh, when the Antichrist comes, turn to Revelation 13 for a minute. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night. But uh, just quickly here, in chapter 13 of Revelation, we're introduced to the first and second beast, which is the Antichrist and the false prophet. And uh, the Antichrist, of course, uh, uh, rises to power. He survives a mortal wound and all of this. But for those who would imagine that when the Antichrist comes, that it will be a purely secular movement, notice here what happens when the uh, second beast comes along in verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon, like a lamb right? But spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and the inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, miracles in other words, even making fire come down from heaven. We saw that earlier when one of the two prophets was calling down fire. The two prophets are doing things similar to Moses and Elijah, 
which leads many to believe, myself included, that these two prophets that are sent by God are in fact Moses and Elijah coming back to do a work. But whatever the case, fire comes down from heaven during that thing. Uh, not terribly unlike back in Moses' time with Janus and Jabres, the two uh, court magicians under Pharaoh who were able to imitate some of the same miracles that Moses and Aaron did. Similarly, the devil, whose playbook, though effective, is not terribly thick, he does the same things in different contexts. Here in this context, at the very end, the world is blown away by this. They're amazed by it. And they are worshiping the beast in part because the false prophet is leading, well, because the false prophet is leading them to. Verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And that goes on to talk about how they take a mark and he causes all this as well. Now, some people see this image and the fact that it can speak as being something like either uh, holographic or AI or something like this. I don't think so. When that stuff, and some of that stuff obviously is on the scene already, you very quickly become very unimpressed with that stuff when it becomes the norm. Something miraculous is taking place here. This is not AI because somebody, it's kind of like you see a picture today or a video uh, and something crazy is going on and all of a sudden it goes all over the internet. You know how easy it is to manipulate video and pictures nowadays? A 10-year-old could put out most of the stuff that's online right now, literally. And most of us that are more than 10 don't think so because we don't understand it. They do, <laughs> right? So when this happens, when the, when the false prophet causes this image to come to life, which, by the way, speaks of the, uh, uh, this whole scene with the Antichrist and this image and all that, this is the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about, that Jesus referred to in Matthew 24. Now it's happening there in the temple of God, which means there will be a temple, by the way, that will be built. We know for a long time Israel's been chomping at the bit to get started on it. They've been making preparations. But when this finally happens, something miraculous is going on. People are, are, are swept into belief in this because of what they see. So it's not going to be a, a trick per se. Something very demonic is going on here, and it is exceedingly convincing to the world around. And so the reason I point to that passage is because when that time comes, it's not going to be an irreligious movement. It's not going to be a time in which there is no belief in some kind of divine power in that. As a matter of fact, when the Antichrist rallies the world around uh, him to take on the Lord at his return, what have they been crying up to this point? Who can take on the beast? Who is like him? He just rose from the dead in their minds. This is a religiously uh, matter of fact, Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as he talks about uh, the Antichrist coming into the temple, declaring himself to be God and demanding to be worshipped above all that is called God. Every religion, every idol of worship, everything at all. He demands not just a sort of, hey guys, put it all away, we're past that. No, he says, worship me above all those things. Very much like the Caesars of old. There is a very religious underpinning behind this whole thing. So be watchful of that. Watch the trends and what's going on. In terms of current events, uh, we'll spend just another minute on this. What about the United States? We mentioned the United States before. Well, 
we don't, uh, we possibly figure an end times prophecy from a scriptural standpoint in that one passage in Ezekiel 38. That is the only place where we might be there. Except for the part where it talks about all the nations of the earth coming against Jerusalem. We're part of that too. But in terms of any specificity, um, we, are, we are not really mentioned in Scripture other than maybe those places. However, and we've talked about this before, so I won't spend a lot of time on this particular point, but if you're going to create a global system that requires uh, reliance upon the government, that requires people to submit, then a nation that is a superpower that is bent on freedom, personal responsibility, private property ownership, things like that, somehow has to be taken out of the way for the global system to get on board or to come together. Um, and you'd be hard-pressed not to make a pretty easy yet strong case that that isn't happening. Um, again, the pandemic has caused people in our country to be willing to sacrifice their constitutionally give, granted, not given, by the way, the Constitution does not grant these powers or give them to us. It guarantees them. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, the Declaration of Independence says, that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, the Constitution is volume two of the Declaration of Independence. Volume two, thankfully, got a chance to be written. Uh, had we lost the war, there'd have only been volume one for posterity. But we built our country on a set of principles Many in our country right now, uh, because of the pandemic, out of fear, are willing to hand over those rights for a perceived, underlined, bolded, stars around it, arrows pointing to it, perceived sense of safety. It's not actual safety. It's a perceived sense of safety. The Jews would call it chutzpah. It's the idea that we feel safe, but in reality we're not from the thing that we're supposed to be safe from. As we talked about before, the pandemic is a tool. It's not that it isn't a real disease, but the response to it is nothing short of a move for control. Economically, when we talk about economics, we're not just talking about being rich, we're talking about people having jobs so they can support their families. We're talking about businesses that exist to give people jobs so they can support their families and build some kind of a life. You and I are all here in this room wearing normal clothes right now because of economics. We believe that you work, you get a paycheck, you live the life that you try to build and all that kind of stuff. Notice I'm very careful not to say build your best life now. Um, but we do live, right? We, we drove here in a car, we have shoes on our feet and that kind of a thing because in America we believe that you should be free to go out and make a living. But when you create a, an environment in which businesses are closed down, where people can't keep their jobs because businesses can't pay them anymore, or in the coming days are forced to pay $15 an hour to people with no skills when they entry level a job. Not to make an economics lesson, but some of you are thinking $15 an hour is a great idea. It's not. You know why? Because if you pay somebody with no skills to come in at $15 an hour, what do you then have to start paying the people who have skills, who have been there for a while? You think they're going to be happy that some newbie that doesn't know how to do anything? You know, the reason our first jobs are always at Sonic or at Burger King or something like that is because you don't need any skills to start working there. You learn them there. I'm not cutting the people down that get jobs there. I'm saying 
it, the, the, the entry point that the managers understand is that you're showing up as a teenager who this is probably your first job most of the time. Some exceptions, obviously. But most of the time, most of us start our first job at a place like that. We learn skills there. And then because we learn those things, we're then more qualified for the next job that pays more than seven or eight bucks an hour. Now we're making 10 or 12. And then we gain more skills. Maybe we become a supervisor or something. Now we're making more. And suddenly now it's not, it's not an hourly position. Now it's a salary position with benefits and stuff. There's a progression of these things that just comes naturally. But when you short circuit that by creating a $15 an hour minimum wage, where now businesses can't afford to stay open because they can't pay anybody, well, now there's no jobs or there's fewer jobs. It's a terrible idea. And it also reduces any sense of having to learn skills because I can go in and earn a living wage at Burger King. Well, what's the point of striving for more? That's exactly right. What has happened by instituting a $15 minimum wage and therefore basically running industry from the government level? That factor of production has now been handed over to the government. That's just one example of many that are taking place in our country right now. I can't even blame people who voted for the other side because I don't even know if it mattered. It's just we are where we are now. Here we are. Which causes us to come back to the whole point of this whole thing. We study prophecy so we know where we are. So we understand where on the time frame we find ourselves, hopefully, so that we become more attuned to the idea of not just saying, but believing from the depths of our hearts, how long, O oh Lord? Our eyes once again, you know, Mike and I have talked about this many times. Um, if Trump had been reelected, some of the, some of the th reasoning went, if Trump's reelected, we're going to have ourselves a revival. Why? Why would you need one if everything's going the way you want? Think about it. No, we're actually much more prone to have a revival now than we were then, just a month ago, two months ago. But I don't want to get too far into that. But recognize that when government takes control of things, that means you have less control over your life. And ultimately, in a globalist system, that is the aim, is that people simply are part of this system, which they would call utopia, but is far from it. It's kind of like a bad relationship in a way. Government nowadays is kind of like a bad relationship. It's kind of like the manipulative, psychologically uh, abusive boyfriend who keeps abusing his girlfriend, but yet conditions her to think she still needs him. That's government and you. I'm not saying we rise up against the government and incite violence, but what I'm saying is we need to take our eyes off of the wrong thing and put it on the right thing. The kingdoms of this world have become, when it is said there in Revelation, in other words, there are, and if you, by the way, when you read that, there are still bowls of wrath to come after this point, after the seventh trumpet. But from heaven's perspective, this thing is a done deal. We're just going through the rest of what has got to happen, but it's a done deal. There's no changing the trajectory. There's no, and there never has been. It's always ultimately going to get to this point. The devil has been moving to try and gather the world ultimately in rebellion against Jesus at his return. And get this, in Revelation 19, at the end of Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, 
he throws the Antichrist and the false prophet into the bottomless pit. And then there's a thousand-year millennial reign, which we'll talk about in just a moment. After the thousand years, during which time Satan is bound, Satan is loosed. After a thousand years of seeing a perfect world led by Jesus, the devil can still round up multitudes and multitudes of people who were born during that time to rebel against Jesus in Jerusalem. You have got to be kidding me. No, it's true. A couple of other things that I think of are worth noting here. As things continue to move forward, as things continue to digress in the direction that they're going, at some point, the waters will have risen far too heavily for the dam to stop them anymore, and things will just pour out. The fact that things are moving right now so quickly should give us pause and cause us to realize where we're really at. Now, it is possible, and of course, you always have to be mindful that, uh, that in the past, when things have ramped up, they've eventually kind of come back down. There's sort of this ebb and flow to history and prophetic things as we study them. But at one point, there will no longer be that coming down the curve anymore. It will have reached critical mass, will have passed fail-safe, and things are now underway. And some generation is going to be there. Many generations have anticipated that they were because of what was going on. And I could spend time talking about the prophecies that have been fulfilled since to demonstrate why we're closer now than they were then. But rather, I would invite you to watch the world around you and not just see the number of things that are going on, but the kinds of things that are going on. Jesus described a world at his return where the love of many had grown cold, where he would struggle to even find faith on the earth anywhere. When we read Matthew 24 and 25, when we read passages like it that help describe the world in the, t in the days of Jesus' return, we are increasingly, not just on an external event level, but even at a very heart level, the very character of humanity has come to a place where it is getting very easy to see that the time of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in is near. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean the last Gentile that will ever get saved. It just means God has a number. It just means at some point, the last one will put their faith in Christ. And at that point, it'll be time to work through Israel again, which means it'll be time for the church to be done. Be watchful, be mindful, and most of all, spend time living your life in such a way that reflects that. Recognize the importance of being Christians in the day in which we live. It's a lot like Esther back in her day. Um, she was very tentative about going in and talking to the king because she thought he might kill her and that kind of thing. Well, Uncle Mordecai uh, told her, well, if you don't do it, God will raise up salvation from somewhere. He'll bring his help from some quarter, with or without you. But how do you know that you weren't raised up for such a time as this? That's you and I. And that's been true of believers throughout time. But if we are in those last few moments prior to Christ's return, what better time, what more important time to recognize that we're here for such a time as this? We had a great discussion yesterday at our men's breakfast about um, kind of that line between patriotism and kingdom-minded. Like at what point is my fighting for the Bill of Rights and things like this and freedoms and that, it, which by the way, 
in my mind, is generally always a good idea. Um, but we've also raised the point, we talked about this yesterday too, that at what point does it become kind of uh, uh, kicking against the goads? At what point are we now kicking against what God has now got in motion? Well, we don't know the actual answer to that question yet, but we should at least be mindful of it. It's an excellent question, and we should be thoughtful about the fact that in some of our efforts, we might be fighting for something that is literally a lost cause at this point because we're moving in such a direction at such a rate of speed. Now, again, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know where the line is drawn in that. And we should always stand for righteousness. We should always, you know, things like freedom, by the way, uh, as opposed to enslavement and that kind of thing, and, and, and anything that goes with that is always a righteous cause to stand against. But we should always sort of remember that Jesus said the world was going to look this way before he came. And so we have to weigh these things. We have to think about it. There's a, how many of you remember Lee Iacocca? Like worked for a penny or something for a couple of years while he was recovering, you know. Uh, Ford, right? Ford Motor Company? And then, uh, or Chrysler, Chrysler. And um, I think it was that Lee Iacocca said uh, on his deathbed, um, you know, nobody, or he didn't, not on his death, but referring to his death, but he said, no one ever said on their death, but I wish I'd spent more time at the office. In other words, there is a sense of priority when things come right down to it. And when it comes down to the kingdom of God, we have to be able to sort of understand at what point the kingdom of God is found in our efforts and at what point it's not, you know, not to put too fine a point on it. But at the end of the day, we have a citizenship in heaven that trumps all others. And I would say we're better citizens of whatever country we're in if we are first citizens of heaven. That citizenship should bless the country that we're citizens of here on earth. Let me invite you to turn to Revelation 20 for just a second. In Revelation chapter 20, you know, we talked about how the day will come when Christ will set up his kingdom the days we're in right now are reflective of a very different kingdom that is at war with the kingdom of God. But the day will actually come when Jesus establishes his kingdom, and this is what it begins to look like. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, verse 1, holding his hand, in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that, the, uh, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, and after that he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, these are tribulation saints now, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on, the forehead, on their foreheads or, or hands. Uh, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. By the way, when we use the word millennial kingdom, this is where the word millennium comes from, thousand years, which I believe is a literal thousand years. I don't believe it's figurative. I don't think it's allegorical. I think just as Jesus literally comes back, he will literally establish a kingdom for a really long period of time, a thousand years. Why? So that when those who rebel afterward, who were born during that time and lived under a perfect, you know, the world is trying to build a utopia, right? The millennium is essentially going to be one. 
The problem has always been man. The reason we can't have a utopia on earth is because of man. We're trying to build it, but we're the problem, right? Communism, right? Communalism, essentially. The idea of living all together as a society with nobody owning anything, which, by the way, is one of the slogans they're putting out there right now. You'll own nothing and be happy. Remember you used to say that to your kids? You'll get nothing and be happy, you know? Well, that's actually like a whole philosophy for this thing. You'll own nothing, but you'll be happier. You'll rent everything, you know, but you won't have to actually own anything. Try telling your kid his iPhone is borrowed for a while and then give it to somebody else, you know. Is he happy? You know, but anyway, I, I mean, I get, I get some of the principle of it, but the problem again is man. We're not altruistic enough. We're not constantly giving enough to be happy with the idea of putting in 40, 50, 60 hours a week and not being uh, compensated for it. You know, we, and, and on top of that, we, we don't, our human psyche doesn't like the idea of doing that and then not only being compensated for it, but some of that compensation being given to somebody else who isn't doing anything. Even the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. Simple. Now, it's not, it's not about we shouldn't be generous and help people. We should be. But human nature is such that we don't do it enough for communism to ever work. It just won't work. It can't. It violates human nature, which is why capitalism, and I'm not promoting, I'm not, this is not what that's about, but it fits human nature. Adam Smith wrote a thousand-page book on the subject, essentially saying, essentially speaking about how the economic system we live in satisfies human selfishness, which is why it works. It's true. Christians should be generous beyond words. Christians should be giving to a fault. My general philosophy, and some of you may or may not like this, but if, 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 if somebody who is in our country illegally showed up at my door and was hungry or their kids were sick or something like this, I would help them. I would feed them. We would house them. We would give them somewhere to stay until they were going wherever they were going. On the other side of the coin, I don't criticize government in trying to figure out the idea of illegal immigration because there are only so much resources to go around. It's just a fact of life. It's the basic rule of, of economics, scarcity, and there's no such thing as a free lunch. It's going to cost somebody somewhere to give stuff away for free for too long. It's just a way of life. But on a personal level, I think we should be giving and, and Christ-hearted and servant-hearted and giving as much as we need to to help somebody. But even Christians, we don't have the ability to be altruistic all the time. And that's what this system will require. So that's why man's the problem. We can't do it. Even with our changed nature, there's still enough residual fallen nature that still does battle where we still struggle with it. However, the utopia that the Lord creates, and it's wrong to even call it a utopia, let's just call it the millennial kingdom for what it is, and then after that, eternity. When Jesus actually makes sure that equity takes place, remember, the Bible says he rules with a rod of iron, right? In fact, let's uh, I'll just finish reading the passage here, too, and then, uh, again, in verse um, 5. Thank you. 
and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. In other words, those who died during the tribulation, those who died previously who were not believers, those who throughout time have not ever come to Christ, they will arise after the millennial kingdom for judgment. But those who enter into the millennial kingdom, who I believe are all saved entering in, but there will be those who are born during the millennial kingdom who, like us, will have to come to Christ and make a decision to respond to the gospel and such. Some will, some won't. But during that thousand years, when those who are not believers uh, or anybody gets out of line, Jesus is ruling this time with a rod of iron, right? Which means he's correcting when there is sin, when there is, uh, when, when there is broken law and things like this. It will be as near to a human utopia as could possibly be on earth. And even still at the end of the day, much like the Garden of Eden, they had one rule, right? And they still fell. The Millennial Kingdom is like Eden restored, essentially. It's a time where the lion lies down with the lamb. All kinds of stuff. It is, it is, it is beautiful. It is fully, it is the fulfillment, maybe minus one degree of heaven and that kind of thing. But with Jesus in charge, it's everything we're hoping for and dreaming of. It's his kingdom coming and his will be done on earth, uh, done on earth as is in heaven. But even still, Jesus has to keep things in line because of human nature. In heaven, that will finally be gone. It'll finally be gone. We'll read about that in just a moment as well. But Jesus will swiftly and effortlessly usher in his kingdom, putting down all evil, maintaining that environment for a thousand years. Then judgment will come as Satan is loosed and allowed to, um, uh, even as it says here at uh, verses 7 to 10, in the space of three verses, Satan's new rebellion after the millennium takes place and is shut down, just to tell you how effortless it will be for the Lord. And then judgment will come, and then we'll move into eternity. That which you and I were created for will be fully realized. A day is coming, and is coming soon. Most of us... Let me give you an analogy. You know, most of us can, uh, and I'll end with this thought. Um, most of us can, if we know there is light at the end of the tunnel, we can push on, right? We can work an extra hour because there's some benefit to it or something like that. We can hold on a little bit longer because we know that if we just do, we'll get over to this thing and things will be all good. There was a study actually done um, with rats in a bathtub, essentially. And there were two rats in a bathtub with water. Now, of course, I'm absolutely sure you could never do this today. But they were in the bathtub. Water was full enough where they couldn't quite get their footing, but it wasn't high enough for them to reach the top and climb out. And so they had to tread water for a period of time. And after some period of time, uh, both rats began to give up because it was hopeless. They couldn't climb out. They couldn't get their footing to stand. And so that once they kind of came to this point of being hopeless, they started to give up. At that moment, the scientists took one of the rats out of the bathtub. Well, suddenly the second rat had all kinds of hope. Maybe this will happen for me too. And they just kept on swimming. And it's, it's terrible. It's cruel, right? I mean, you'd never do this. But it's just they did this to do some kind of a test to figure this stuff out. It's horrible. But... But the point I'm making is this, is that when you have hope, you find the strength to persevere. 
you push on a little further. You keep going a little longer because at the end of this thing, there is, there's the chance you might make it. Well, don't you know that when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to our salvation, it's not a chance of making it. We're going. At some point, this whole story will be over and we'll enter into that which we were created for. We'll be in that perfect place in the presence of God where there is no more struggle and strife. There is no more ethnic fighting and, and, and battling over things. There's no, more, uh, there's no more hatred for our fellow man. There's no more stealing and killing and destroying. There's no more devastating news on the phone from the hospital. There's no more any of that. It'll be over. And we'll be with the Lord in whom is light and is no darkness at all. As a matter of fact, there's not even like a sun and moon in that environment because the Lord himself will be its light. And it's coming and we're going. And that ought to be enough for us to hold on a little while longer. When we cry out, how long, O Lord? There is an actual answer to that question. It's finite. It's not forever. Heaven, on the other hand, is. And so let me encourage you. I know some of you come here and are troubled. And I know that even sometimes when we do our prophecy updates, there's a lot of bad news when we look at the world around us. I understand that. But at the end of that bad news is the greatest news of all. Jesus wins, and we win alongside of him, and we enter an eternity with him. The gospel itself is good news, right? But implied in the gospel is bad news. The bad news is that you and I are sinners, lost, dead in our sin. But God, in Christ, reconciled the world to himself in the death of his son, who shed his blood for our sins, that we would be forgiven. And all that remains, in spite of that sin, is for us to put our trust in Jesus, to put our faith in him, the one who paid our debt for us, the one who died for our sins and took our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west into the deepest sea to be remembered no more. Without understanding the bad news, we can't appreciate the good news. But it's in spite of the bad news that the good news shines all the brighter. While none of us is deserving, God is gracious. God is loving. And God's desire is not that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, if you're here today, or if you're listening or watching or whatever, and you've come to a place where you realize now, finally, you're ready to respond to the gospel. Again, all that's left is to believe. It's interesting how Paul in chapter 5 of Second Thess uh, Corinthians said that God was in Christ again, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, right? But Paul then says, therefore, we're ambassadors with the message, be reconciled. Again, all that remains is you to respond now, to answer God's call to be saved. And I'd like to give you that opportunity now. If you've never come to that place where you have finally just handed yourself over to him, fallen upon his grace alone for the forgiveness of your sins, to appreciate and understand that it is only through him that this promise of everlasting life is yours to have. John said, we've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life that you may right now know that right now you have eternal life. You can know that right now, and I'll invite you to pray with me so that you do. 
Father, as we uh, spend these last few moments together, arguably the most important moments of the entire morning, we pray that, Father, by your Holy Spirit, you'd bring to the forefront of the understanding of any who are lost among us today their need to be saved. That their nature is such that apart from you, they could never have hope, could never be saved, are truly hopeless. But in Christ, our living hope, there is the knowledge that everlasting life is your gift for us to embrace today. And so, Father, I pray that you'd bring that conviction of sin, but also on top of that, the knowledge that where sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. If you're here today and you're ready to throw in the towel and stop trying to be good enough, stop fruitlessly and hopelessly following some other religion, and you're ready to come to Jesus today, that you might be beautifully, wonderfully, and eternally born again, then I invite you to pray with me right now. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner. Nobody is responsible for my sin except for me. But I thank you that your love overshadowed my sin and that by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross, my debt was paid. My sin was forgiven. I put my trust in him now as my sole savior. I pray that you'd help me to live my life for him now. The one who died for me and rose from the dead to life eternal. A life that I will enjoy one day now that you've set me free. Thank you for your grace, your love and your mercy. And now I pray that you'd give me your spirit and the strength to follow you every day until I see you face to face, unafraid and unashamed. Thank you, Father. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.